I recall the exact moment in my life when I fell in love with podcasts. I suspect that it was the same moment for many of you out there. It occurred at different times for all of us, of course, but it was about 15 minutes into the first episode of the podcast called Serial. It is a masterpiece of storytelling. It's compelling. It draws you into the story immediately and doesn't let go. And best of all, it's true. It really was the show that put podcasting on the map. And even bigger than that, it caused the case of Adnan Syed and the tragic murder of Heyman Lee to be re-examined. Unless you were living under a rock at that point in time, you more likely than not have heard about the Syed case in Serial. Now, I love the medium more than anything that I had ever encountered. It was like a documentary, but didn't have time constraints, as they could dig in as deep as they needed to in the pursuit of truth. It was like a book, but you could hear the interviews with witnesses and the parties involved with the case. It dove into the trial, the investigation, the appeals, the strengths of the case, the flaws. It had it all, and I was smitten. I was hooked. So on September 15th, when the news broke about the motion to vacate the judgment of conviction in Adnan Syed's case, being filed by Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for the city of Baltimore, I was stunned and compelled to do this bonus episode of Sidebar, presented by Defense Diaries, because I want our listeners to know exactly what occurred and what it means. Now, if you happen to be one of the 12 people in America that has never heard of this case, I'm about to give you the thumbnail. On January 13th of 1999, Hay Min Lee, an 18-year-old resident of Baltimore, had attended a full day of school at Woodlawn High School, and her classmates observed her leaving campus at the end of the school day. She was reported missing by her family after she failed to pick up her cousin from daycare at 315 which was something that would never happen unless something bad had occurred. The Baltimore police were inclined to agree and began investigating into her disappearance immediately. The cops began by interviewing many of Hayes' friends and classmates on that first day. All of them confirmed that she had in fact attended school and had remained there for the entirety of the day. At around 6.30 p.m., they made contact with May's ex-boyfriend and fellow Woodlawn student, a guy named Adnan Syed, who informed the cops that he had last seen Hay towards the end of the school day. At about 1.30 in the morning, the cops located Hay's current boyfriend, a guy named Donnie Kleindinst, who claimed that he had not seen her all day. Now, nearly a month passes and Hay still has not been located. That is until February 9th of 1999 when Baltimore police are contacted by an individual who had been walking through Lakin Park in Baltimore and who discovered what he believed to be was a partially buried human body. Unfortunately, this in fact turned out to be Heyman Lee. It appeared that she had been strangled to death and left in a shallow grave. The cops initially focused their attention on the citizen who discovered the body until they received a tip from an anonymous caller telling the cops that they should look into Hay's ex-boyfriend, none other than Adnan Syed. The cops decided to do exactly that, which led them to question Syed and his friends. When the cops interviewed a friend of Syed's named Jay Wilds, he provided them with bombshell information, namely that Syed had told him that that day he was going to kill Hay Min. 
Wilds wasn't done telling tales out of school. No, not by a long shot. He then goes on to say that Adnan had actually admitted to him that he had, in fact, killed Hey Min by strangling her. He then goes so far as to say that Adnan then takes him to the back of his car, opens up his trunk, and shows him Hey Min's lifeless body. But he's still not done. He then says that Wiles himself helped Adnan dispose of her body in Lake and Woods. After further questioning, Wilds informs the cops that he had borrowed both Adnan's cell phone and car on the day that Heyman vanished. After the cops hear this bombshell statement by Wilds, they instantly develop tunnel vision, and Adnan Syed becomes their guy. And on February 16th of 1999, Baltimore PD subpoenas Adnan's cell phone records, which show that Syed's phone had pinged a cell tower in the vicinity of Lakin Park around 7 p.m., which happens to coincide with Wilde's story. The cops in the state both believe at this point that with Wilde's testimony and the cell phone records that they have enough to secure a conviction in the murder of Haben Lee. Subsequently, Adnan Syed is arrested on February 28th of 1999 and is charged with first-degree murder. Adnan's family hires private counsel, a lawyer named Christina Gutierrez, and he is tried and convicted by a jury on February 25th of the year 2000. Adnan is sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years as he is found guilty of first-degree murder. Syed has always maintained his innocence, and the long, bleak appellate process began immediately after his conviction. His initial appeal is filed with the Court of Special Appeals, which affirms his conviction on March 19th of 2003. Fast forward 10 years to May of 2010. At this point, Adnan files a Post-Conviction Relief Act petition, which is supplemented in June of 2010. He raises nine issues, including ineffective assistance of counsel at all stages. In December of 2013, the post-conviction court denies all of his claims. At this point, a childhood friend and advocate of Adnan's named Rabia Chaudhry has convinced former Baltimore Sun reporter Sarah Koenig to look into her friend's case because she believes with all of her heart that her friend is innocent. And Koenig does just that. And in October of 2014, the podcast Serial is released and episodes of the podcast are dropped weekly through December 18th of 2014. The podcast absolutely explodes, and because of that, the case starts to get national attention. But the legal grind for Adnan slogs on. And in 2015, Adnan files an application to the court for leave to appeal. This is him asking the court for their permission to file another appeal. Now, the main thrust of this particular pleading is that Adnan's trial lawyer failed to interview or investigate a girl named Asia McLean who was a potential alibi witness, and that his counsel never, ever sought a plea deal. Now, don't jump to the conclusion because of the fact that Syed is now complaining that his lawyer did not seek a plea deal as the equivalent of him being guilty. No. You see, in the appellate process, you raise every single issue that potentially can result in a new trial being ordered. Adnan includes the sworn affidavit of Asia McLean with his application. And one thing that you need to understand about appeals is that they are not unlimited. 
Defendants cannot file appeal after appeal after appeal. I know that it may seem like that when you learn about a case and you see that the appellate process has gone on for 15 years, but that's just because they take forever to be written, to be argued, and then to be ruled on. But once an appeal, an original appeal, is denied, the defendant then appeals to the next higher appellate court. If it's denied again, then it goes to the state Supreme Court, which is not always called the Supreme Court. For instance, the highest appellate court in Maryland is called the Court of Appeals. But once a defendant has exhausted all of their appeals at the state level, their final, final straw in the appellate process is to attempt to get the Supreme Court of the United States to listen to their case. And the odds of getting an appeal heard there are very, very long. Now, once the Supreme Court of the United States denies to hear the case, the defendants are left with only Post-Conviction Relief Act petitions, which also, like appeals, are incredibly difficult to prevail on. And typically, they require truly newly discovered evidence. The bottom line is this, that once you are in the system, it is damn near impossible to get out of it. Imagine how daunting that is if you are actually innocent. But I digress. Let's get back to Adnan's application for leave to file an appeal. And that was done with the Special Court of Appeals, which actually grants Syed's request and issues what is called a limited remand, allowing Adnan to file a request asking the circuit court, back where the trial was held, to consider Asia McLean's affidavit. Now, once Adnan was given the okay by the Special Court of Appeals, he files a request for the circuit court to consider a new basis for ineffective assistance of counsel, which means that my lawyer screwed up, as well as a Brady violation, which I'll explain in a minute, concerning the cell phone tower location. The post-conviction court grants the request to reopen the post-conviction proceedings in order to review both of the issues. So on June 30th of 2016, the post-conviction court denies relief regarding the trial court's failure to investigate Asia McLean as an alibi witness. However, the failure by Syed's lawyer to challenge the cell phone tower info resonates with the court, and they vacate the conviction and grant Adnan a new trial. So that's amazing news for Adnan. However, the state, just like the defendant, can appeal decisions made by courts, and they did just that here. And on March 29th of 2018, the Special Court of Appeals found that the failure by Adnan's lawyer to call Asia McLean as an alibi witness was a massive screw-up, and that Adnan deserved a new trial. As for the cell phone tower issue, the court held that the issue had been waived because Syed had not raised that issue in his first post-conviction petition. That waiver rule is brutal, but now is not the time to dive into it. The state appeals this decision as well, this time to the highest court in Maryland, the Court of Appeals. And they disagree with the Court of Special Appeals and hold that the failure to call McLean did not warrant a new trial and that they agree that the cell phone tower issue was waived. So what does all this mean? Well, what it means is that Adnan Syed, for as excited and optimistic as he was, well, it was all for naught. He's out of appeals and he's out of issues. And the only chance he has 
is for the Supreme Court of the United States to agree to hear the case. And apparently the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States didn't listen to Serial because they denied to hear the case. This spells doom for Adnan Syed and dashes his hopes of ever getting out of prison because short of a miracle of some smoking gun exculpatory evidence appearing out of thin air after 20 years, he has exhausted all of his appeals and post-trial remedies. It's game over. Then, in one of the most stunning occurrences that I'm aware of ever occurring in the history of the United States, Marilyn Mosby and Becky Feldman, the state's attorney and assistant state's attorney of the city of Baltimore, filed a motion yesterday. A motion to vacate the judgment of conviction against Adnan Syed. This just does not happen. Convictions typically have to be pried out of a prosecutor's cold, dead hands. Most prosecutors, even when faced with undeniable exculpatory evidence, will refuse to concede that they convicted an innocent person. It is quite simply the most infuriating aspect of the criminal justice system. And for prosecutors to have that type of power and for them to wield it in such an unjust way is unforgivable. So I have to give massive, massive props to Miss Mosby and her office. And as I dug into her, I found that this is not the first case that has been prosecuted by predecessors in her office, that she has challenged the integrity of the conviction and sought to have it vacated. I believe that there have been seven. What a credit to the profession, a prosecutor that actually cares about justice over convictions. It gives me hope, hope that other prosecutors across the country will see that truth matters, that the integrity of the process matters, that if a conviction is shown to be questionable, that it is their duty to vacate the conviction to ensure that true justice does prevail. So what does this motion to vacate mean? Does it mean that the state believes that Adnan is innocent? No, not necessarily. Does it mean that Adnan has been exonerated? No, not at all. What it means is that the state's attorney has revisited and reinvestigated Adnan's case and what her and her investigators found deeply, deeply troubled her. So much so that she in good conscience could not sit idly by and let this conviction sit unchallenged. So what happens next is that the judge will conduct a hearing at which time attorney Mosby will argue that the state has uncovered new information that calls into question the integrity of the conviction. She will argue that there was misconduct by her predecessors known as Brady violations and that that in combination with the new information, requires the court to vacate the conviction and to release Adnan on his own recognizance until such time that he is either retried or the case is nolly prost, which means dismissed. She will further argue to the judge that the Maryland legislature had passed a bill which allows for the state to file a motion to vacate convictions back in 2019. That's right. Up until that point, this wasn't even a thing that the state could do under the law. So up until that law was passed, they couldn't say, ooh, we screwed this one up and we're asking the court to take it back. No, they actually had to pass a law for the state's attorney's office to have the ability to do that. 
And this only came about because of the massive gun trace task force scandal that rocked Baltimore and was the subject of the outstanding limited series on HBO called We Own the City. You want to talk about dirty cops? And prepare to be stunned. Those guys were criminals. Those dirty cops testifying in cases had to be vacated because they couldn't be trusted at all. Hence, this law was born. And ironically, Adnan owes a debt of gratitude to those dirty coppers because without them being the scumbags that they were, this law may have never come on the books. And more likely than not, Adnan would be spending the rest of his life in prison. So it will then be in the judge's hands to either agree or disagree with the state. Now, obviously, when it's the state coming to the judge saying, look, we don't think we can trust this conviction, we need to take it off the books and see what else our investigation turns up, it's going to be pretty compelling to the judge. Now, I firmly believe that two things will happen at that hearing. One, the judge will vacate the conviction, and two, he will release Adnan from custody. Now, there are those that believe with all of their hearts that he is innocent, and there are those who believe just as passionately that he is guilty. And either way, please understand this, that if both things that I predict will happen do happen, Adnan Syed is still not in the clear. That decision by the judge will not mean that he has been exonerated. It does not mean that he cannot be retried, because he can, and very well might be. But that's where it gets really interesting. The state will have 30 days after the conviction is vacated to either nolly pros or drop the charges against Adnan, and at that point, he is a free man. Now, the state does have the ability to recharge him as long as the statute of limitation hasn't run. But with murder, there is no statute of limitations. In spite of all that, that rarely happens. So I believe if the state nolly processes the case, Adnan's free and clear. The other thing that they can do is that they can indicate to the court that they are electing to retry him. And the matter at that point will get set for trial. Now, even with this, it doesn't mean that they will actually ever go to trial. They might just be trying to buy time to continue to investigate the other suspects. Other suspects, you say? Why, yes, the other suspects. You see, in the state's motion, they state that during their investigation that they had developed evidence regarding the possible involvement of two alternative suspects, who they refused to name at this point. The state claims that these suspects were known at the time of the investigation, but they were never properly ruled out or cleared. The state found new information that could suggest possible motive and or propensity to commit this crime. In addition to the two potential suspects, the state in their year-long investigation also uncovered multiple Brady violations. Now, a Brady violation is where the prosecution suppresses evidence that was favorable to the defendant, either as to his guilt or punishment and the evidence that was withheld was material to the issue of guilt or punishment. Basically what this means is that the state was hiding evidence from the defense that was either exculpatory, which means it proved or helped prove the defendant's innocence, or would have provided the defense with an alternate suspect theory. The prosecutor failing to turn over information about an alternative suspect 
can constitute a reversible Brady violation, which means the defendant is getting a new trial, especially when the state's case is 100% circumstantial. The impact of the defense being able to point the finger at another suspect is hard to quantify, but I can tell you this, not having that option at your disposal as a defense attorney completely changes the defense's strategy. It shifts it to a reasonable doubt case, which means that the defense is arguing that the state didn't meet their burden, and no defense attorney would ever select that strategy as their first, second, or even third option. It really is a last resort. And that is precisely why the original prosecutor withheld the discovery about the additional suspects. It's a massive, massive violation. And beyond that, what if one of these two guys, or both of them, are responsible for Heyman's death? The thought of that sickens me. And that prosecutor should have his bar car pulled. This isn't a game. These are human beings, and it is their lives that are being toyed with by this trash prosecutor. Shame on him. But don't take my word for it. I mean, after all, I am just a defense attorney, and, you know, prosecutors are supposed to be my sworn enemy. But you know just exactly how repugnant his actions were when one of his own brethren, a fellow prosecutor, threw him under the bus. It just doesn't happen. And I cannot begin to tell you how much respect I have for Marilyn Mosby and the integrity that she possesses. Now, when you dig into the motion that Mosby prepared, which you don't have to do, because luckily enough for you, I did, you get the distinct impression that it's very likely that the state is going to dismiss the case against Adnan and file charges against one or both of these suspects. It appears that these cases would also be circumstantial, as sadly, it doesn't seem as if the trace-level DNA that was detected from the swabs of Hay's right fingernail yielded usable results. However, as you read through the motion, the state essentially lays out its case against the unnamed suspects, starting with Hay's vehicle. As it turns out, her car was discovered in a grassy lot, which just so happens to be directly behind a home of one of the additional suspect's family members. This family member has lived in the home for many years and most importantly, owned the home in 1999. This is newly discovered information that the prosecution uncovered during its 2022 investigation. Then the motion shifts and it talks about evidence of propensity as one of the suspects attacked an unknown woman without provocation in her vehicle. He was convicted of that offense. Sound familiar? This offense occurred after the trial took place in 1999, but it's still relevant and the state will be looking much, much deeper into this particular crime. But the hits keep coming as one of the suspects engaged in serial rape and sexual assault. That suspect was convicted of these crimes as well. These crimes, again, took place after the trial, but again, are relevant and go to propensity. But wait, there's more. One of the suspects is alleged to have engaged in aggressive and violent behavior against a woman he knew. He also forcibly confined her and is alleged to have made threats against her life. These events happened prior to the trial and should have been disclosed to the defense, yet they weren't. We still aren't done, as one of the suspects was improperly cleared after taking not one, but two polygraphs. 
The first lie box showed that deception was indicated after the first exam. The suspect claimed that he was distracted, so they allowed him to come back on a different day. And the administrator used the peak of tension test, which we discussed at length in season two of this pod. Now, this test should never have been used to disconfirm a deception test, yet it was used. Despite the fact that its validity is not well established and it has no scoring system but relies solely on subjective interpretations of overall trends. After the second exam, the cop then tells the prosecutor that the suspect had passed with, quote, flying colors, end quote. The expert that Mosby consulted prepared an affidavit that challenges the truth of the conclusion that the suspect passed with flying colors. The worst part is, the cop did no further investigation on the suspect after the second test. But Mosby didn't stop there. The state's attorney and her staff dug into the evidence that was presented at the original trial, which only bolstered the growing concern with the current state's attorney's office regarding the integrity of the conviction. These are the facts and evidence that concerned them most. First and foremost were the billing statements from AT&T, which were used to corroborate Jay Wilde's testimony regarding his and Adnan's whereabouts on the date in question. What concerned Mosby most was that the records themselves stated unequivocally that billing location for incoming calls, quote, would not be considered reliable information for location, end quote. Despite this disclaimer, the state used this evidence to prove Adnan's location at a particular location at a particular time. Adnan's trial attorney completely whiffed on this as she didn't even cross the state's cell phone tower expert on this issue at all. Wholly ineffective. The state's own expert stated in a sworn affidavit that the state did not provide him with notice of the disclaimer prior to him taking the stand. He further states that had he been provided with this information, he would have been incapable of testifying as he did at trial, stating unequivocally that the location information was accurate. Moreover, the post-conviction court found that Adnan's trial attorney was ineffective, as it stated that any reasonable attorney would have exposed the misleading nature of the state's theory by cross-examining the state's expert. The post-conviction court found this error to be so grievous that it rose to the level of ineffective and that it caused the result of the trial to be fundamentally unreliable. Recall that it was the post-conviction court that granted Syed a new trial, only to see it overturned by the Court of Special Appeals, not on the merits, but based on the issue of waiver, stating that because the issue was not raised in Syed's initial post-conviction petition, that the issue was permanently barred from being argued. Now, it's stunning to me that a potentially innocent defendant's viable appellate issues can be completely ignored simply because their attorney screwed up. That is not justice, not by a long shot, and it's an issue that must be addressed moving forward. Mosby found the post-conviction court's analysis of the cell phone data issue so compelling that the state dug into this aspect 
even further during its 2022 investigation and consulted with the defense's digital forensic expert who gave a detailed explanation as to why the evidence presented at trial was unreliable. The state then consulted two more experts who did not testify at trial, but who both came to the same conclusion that the evidence was the heart of the state's case and that it was unreliable. So this left Mosby with only Jay Wilde's testimony at trial as the last bastion of whether or not she could have confidence in the integrity of the conviction. In determining whether or not Jay Wilde's testimony was reliable, Mosby first reviewed the testimony of Christina Vinson, who had corroborated Wilde's timeline at trial, stating that the defendant and Wilde's had come to her place at around 6 p.m. on the date of the murder. She had also testified that Adnan received a phone call at about 6 and abruptly left. However, Mosby and her staff reviewed the HBO documentary in which Miss Vincent appeared on, and she was presented with her class schedule from the University of Maryland, BC, on camera, which reflected that she had an evening class on January 13th, the day of the murders. Vincent stated in the doc that she would not have missed that class. The state finds that this new evidence tends to show that Ms. Vincent was incorrect on her dates during her testimony at trial. This pokes a major hole in Wilde's story and the state's timeline. As far as Wilde's testimony, simply put, Mosby in her office has decided that if that's all that exists in the case against Adnan Syed, that the state cannot rely on that alone. Wilds had been interviewed not once, not twice, but four times by police, and all of his statements were fraught with inconsistencies and lies. Only after Wilds was presented with various evidence, such as cell phone records during his second interview, that his recollection on where him and Adnan were at certain times got better. It was also during the second interview when the tape recorder was off that Wilds allegedly informed the cops of the vehicle's location. These huge issues with Wilds' version of the truth are cast into even more doubt as interviews that he gave to various media outlets contained vastly different stories regarding when he was picked up from the Best Buy by Adnan and the location of Heyman's body. The bottom line is that the guy is full of shit and nothing that he said at that time can be trusted. And his testimony alone, 100%, cannot support the integrity of the conviction. Finally, as if all of that wasn't enough, Mosby examines the past misconduct of one of the investigating detectives, namely William Ritz. As the state felt compelled to inform the court that Ritz's misconduct in another case, State versus Malcolm Bryant, resulted in Mr. Bryant being exonerated in 2016 after serving 17 years for a murder he did not commit. Ritz was found to have used a misidentification by an eyewitness to secure the conviction in Bryant's case and further failed to disclose incriminating evidence that likely would have snagged the true perpetrator. Ritz's misconduct goes on and on in the Bryant case to the extent that Mosby has formed the opinion that he is a bent copper and that anything that he has touched can't be trusted. 
So, at the end of the day, with the mountain of new evidence and the existence of the tainted and unreliable evidence that was used at trial, Mosby, in good conscience and in the interest of justice, unequivocally has reached the conclusion that Adnan Syed's conviction cannot stand. And, at the very least, he should be granted a new trial. The developments in Baltimore by this glorious state's attorney have renewed my faith in humanity and in the criminal justice system. We here at Defense Diaries will be following this story very, very closely, and we will be breaking it down for you like we always do, by digging deep and giving you the straight dope. So keep your eye out for the next sidebar on the Adnan Syed case, and thanks so much for listening. Talking to you next time.